Welcome to the Wildflower Half Hour. I'm Isabel Hardman and in this episode we'll be learning about violets, the threatened plants of Oxfordshire and discovering another one of your favourite nature reserves. Wildflower Hour takes place every Sunday on social media between 8 and 9pm. You just need to find flowers growing wild in Britain and Ireland, then upload them to Twitter or Instagram using the hashtag Wildflower Hour or on the Wildflower Hour Facebook group. If you don't know what the flowers are, there will be plenty of lovely people on hand to help out. Now, one of the loveliest people in Wildflower Hour is Moira O'Donnell. She leads our herbology hunt, which is our junior section, and she's here now to tell us about her love of violets. Hello, I'm Moira. I've always liked violets, but this spring I've become quite obsessed with them. Maybe it's my imagination and my newfound fondness for them, but they do seem to have been quite prolific this year, and I seem to be seeing them everywhere I look. I admire them for their extreme prettiness and their I'm just going to pop up wherever I fancy attitude. When I'm not out and about looking for and photographing them, I can be found poring over the pages of my newly acquired BSBI Viola handbook, trying to identify what I find and becoming hypnotised by descriptions of sepals, spurs and stipules. Violets are one of our most familiar wildflowers and in a less urban past they would have been more familiar still. Grown in pots since earliest times, they were cultivated in medieval and Elizabethan knot gardens and used as a strewing herb. Aristophanes described Athens as violet-crowned and violet garlands were sold in the marketplace in Athens all year round. There were numerous violet nurseries to meet the huge demand for the flowers. Their attractiveness means it's not surprising that they have featured in literature and legend throughout the ages. William Shakespeare, who mentioned them a total of 18 times in his works, seems to have been particularly fond of them. In A Midsummer Night's Dream, Oberon says of the place where he knows Titania often sleeps, I know a bank where the wild thyme blows, where oxlips and the nodding violet grows. To the Greeks, the violet was a beautiful nymph, transformed by the jealous goddess Diana into a flower so that Apollo would stop chasing her. And in the centuries-old language of flowers, much loved by the Victorians. Violets were considered to stand for modesty and faithfulness. Bouquets of sweet violets were sold in Victorian street markets. It's also not surprising that they were considered to have medicinal value. The Romans used them in a liniment to ease gout and worn in a garland around the head as a means of warding off headaches and dizziness. The flowers are edible and crystallised violet petals have been used to decorate desserts for centuries and the Greeks and Romans drank violet wines. Violets belong to the family Violaceae. In the British Isles, this has only one genus, Viola, and this genus contains all our wild violets and pansies. They're a very distinctive group of plants with their irregular five-petaled flowers. The two uppermost petals are called the dorsal petals. The bottom petal is called the lip and has a hollow backward projection called a spur. And there are two side or lateral petals which in most violas have tufts of hairs or beards towards their bases. The flowers have five sepals with back-pointing appendages and the fruits are three-valved capsules. Most people will be able to recognise a violet, even if they cannot separate them into individual species, but there are nine different species of violets found in Britain and Ireland. Of these, the Teasdale violet and the Fen violet are extremely rare, existing only in a few circumscribed sites and the pale dog violet is nationally scarce. The other species are sweet violet, hairy violet, early dog violet, common dog violet, heath dog violet and marsh violet. 
violets will also hybridise, and there are several recognised hybrids. As well as being beautiful, some of our native violets are the main food plant for several species of fritillary butterfly. So without claiming to be exhaustive or terribly expert, here is my enthusiast's guide to identifying the four commoner species of violet that you may have been seeing popping up in gardens, woodlands or road verges near you. Which ones you are most likely to see will however depend on which part of the country you're in. Things to look out for are whether the sepals are rounded or pointed, the size and shape of the sepal appendages, the colour and shape of the spur, the shape of the leaves, the colour of the flowers and the pattern of veins on the lip petal. So let's start off with sweet violet, Viola odorata. Heralding spring, these are one of the first of the violets to flower from late February to May. These are our only scented violet, although I have to confess I've never been able to detect a scent from any of the ones I've sniffed. And this may be because one of the constituents of the scent is ionine, which has the power to deaden or anaesthetize scent receptors in the nose. The first thing to look for are the sepals, which are rounded as opposed to pointed. The only violets to have rounded sepals are sweet violets and hairy violets. Sweet violet flowers are a beautiful deep purple with a purplish green spur, which can sometimes be hooked upwards. The leaf stalks have short hairs which are pressed up against the stem. The leaves and flowering stalks all arise from a central point and the flowering stems are leafless. The leaves themselves are almost circular in shape and these increase in size throughout the season and can become quite large. Where I am in South London, the sweet violets have more or less finished flowering now, but the plants are still easily identifiable by their leaves. There are several named varieties of sweet violet, the most common of which is a beautiful white flowering form with a violet spur. There are also pretty lilac, pink and apricot varieties. Similar to sweet violet, but more likely to be found on short open turf on chalk grassland, is the hairy violet, Viola herta, which flowers from late March to May. Like sweet violets, the flowers have rounded sepals and the leaves and leafless flower stalks all arise from a central point. The flowers are a lovely blue-violet with greenish-purple hooked spurs and are only very rarely white. To check if you have a hairy violet, you need to look at the hairs on the leaf stalks, which will be spreading as opposed to being pressed up against the stem like sweet violets. The leaves are more oval in shape than those of sweet violet. Common dog violet, Viola raviniana, is our commonest violet and is found in a wide variety of habitats all over the British Isles. So wherever you live, you are likely to be able to see this beautiful little flower. Perhaps because of its ability to thrive in a wide variety of habitats, common dog violets can be very variable. But the flowers are generally characterised by broad, violet-coloured overlapping petals with a white throat and long, much-branched veins on the lip. There is often a zone of darker colour below the white throat. The sepals are pointed and have large-ish square-cut appendages, which are often notched or scalloped. The spur is normally much lighter than the petals and is stout and blunt with a notched tip. The leaves are heart-shaped, mostly in a central non-flowering rosette, and the flowers are on short leafy stems. After the first flowering from March to May, there is sometimes a later flowering in August to October, but sometimes the flowers do not open and are self-pollinating in the bud. Practically all the violets I'm seeing around about at the minute are common dog violets. Lastly, the early dog violet, Viola reichenbachiana. As the name suggests, these flower slightly earlier than common dog violets, 
but the two species can sometimes be a bit difficult to tell apart. Early dog violets are fairly common in woodland and other shady places. They are much like common dog violet, but the flowers are smaller and more delicate and the veins on the lip are not nearly so branched and are shorter and less extensive. The spur, which is normally as dark in colour or darker than the petals, is also slimmer and not so obviously notched. The sepals are pointed, but are slimmer than those of common dog violet and their appendages are smaller. If you're at all interested in wild violets and pansies, I would totally recommend you acquire the BSBI handbook and watch out for my forthcoming book, Spurred On, My Search for All the Violets of Great Britain. Two species I am still looking forward to finding are marsh violet and, if I can, heath dog violet. So watch out on Wildflower Hour to see if I find them. Thanks, Moira. And violets are very often found in the habitats that we want you to scour for our next challenge, hedgerows. Spend this week looking in these very special homes for wildflowers and wildlife, and then upload your photos using the hashtag hedgerowchallenge. As ever, there will be more tips on wildflowerhour.co.uk. Next up, this is a wonderful time of year to visit Oxfordshire as its famous snakes have fritillaries are in full bloom. But not all of the wildflowers in this county are all that safe. Peter Creed of Nature Bureau is worried about certain species and I asked him what was being done to help Oxfordshire's threatened plants. So Peter, does Oxfordshire have a lot of plants that are under threat? Yeah, it's about 270, just over 270 species are thought to be threatened in Oxfordshire, which is quite a high proportion. And how threatened is threatened? Does this mean that if, you know, one plant disappears, that's that's it for, the, for that species in the county? Yeah, it could be for some, but it's anything from... There might be several thousand. I mean, a good example is the um, the snake's head fritillary, for instance, which is um, one of Oxfordshire's threatened plants. It's also Oxfordshire's county flower. Um, but at some sites, there are over, you know, 100,000 on a particular site. And on the, the local wildlife trusts reserve at Ifley Meadows, they've recorded up to about 80,000 in good years. But there might only be you know, eight or nine sites for them in the in the county. So that's one of the ones that, you know, when you go up to a site, you might think, well, this isn't threatened. But of course, the habitat is threatened. Uh, and if that, you know, that if the habitat, habitat changes, the management, cha- management changes, then of course, the, the plant could decline. And um, when Bee Belt first took over the Ifley Meadows site, their nature reserve where it was, uh, back in the early 80s, there were only 300 plants up there. So getting it up to a population of uh, in excess of 80,000 um, is is pretty good. And that was through um, you know the, a change in management, grazing regime, and all sorts to 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 get the numbers up again. And they've you know, some years it's it's very good, but depends on weather. Sometimes when we had that very wet summer, for instance. Uh, when it flooded, the meadow flooded in the summer, the following year there were only about 20,000 and that was simply because of the the weather the previous year. And so just describe for listeners what these flowers look like. For those who haven't had the chance to see what snakes have fritillaries are like when they're growing en masse. Yeah, well they're, they're lovely members of the uh, lily family and they've they've got lovely snake uh, snake's head type drooping flowers, uh, and the flowers are pretty large, 
and uh, the lovely checkered purple checkered flowers and fritillary means checkered anyway so uh, that's how they get their name so um yeah the vast majority of the fritillaries are the purple checkered plants but dotted in amongst them about 10 percent of fritillaries in the meadows uh, are pure white so you get a really nice kind of mixture of the deep purple and then these little kind of white star-like ones that you see across the meadow and occasionally there's one or two that are much pinker but the vast majority this really rich royal purple and why are they so endangered is it that the sort of sites where they grow are disappearing um well they like meadows that flood in um the winter uh, especially or or Uh, at least flood at some point in the winter and they need to be grazed better by cattle because the cattle poach the ground so you you know because they're heavy beasts they tend to kind of where they're walking around in damp meadows they tend to uh, make you know larger kind of holes where the hooves go and that means when the the meadows flood in the winter these kind of areas are like little pools that go into these areas and the seeds of say the the fritillary float and uh, they can they can uh, then kind of take hold uh, in these little kind of poached parts of the meadow and if if the meadows aren't uh, managed in that way then other plants can take a hold and um, you know the fertility has decreased then. So tell us about some of the other plants that are also flowering in Oxfordshire but aren't necessarily thriving. Well, the ones that are, are not thriving quite often are the plants of Arab. Well, what most people would think of as arable weeds. There's quite a few of those that are pretty rare now, and and the reason they're not thriving is because they're. Um, you know, their habitat is disappearing, really. The intensive farming or no headlands around the um, the edges of fields can really put paid to a lot of those. And there's a, there's a fair few of those around. Things like corn, corn marigold, which people probably remember from, you know, their childhoods would have been, you know, a fairly common sight. But now you don't see these lovely bright golden yellow flowers, anything like you used to do. And there's there's plenty of other cornfield weeds that um, that have suffered in that way. The the other types of plants that are uh, disappearing again are um, uh, there's a lot of wetland plants that are that are becoming rarer again because of uh, their habitats being drained or whatever. So the habitats are actually disappearing then. And there's there's quite a few wetland plants in Oxfordshire that are really at their you know almost on their last legs but but some of those ones are pretty well known there's one actually right in the middle of Oxford which is um, you know a a really threatened plant um, called the creeping marshwort and it grows in Port Meadow uh, right you know which is one of these ancient grazing meadows right in the well, it goes from the centre of Oxford almost right up to the north of Oxford. It's nearly two miles long. And this plant um, was one time only known from that meadow. It's been planted in a couple of other places nearby 
just to have a kind of a spare almost so that if anything goes wrong with the the main habitat at least they've got other sites where it might carry on and they've got you know the seeds and the plants growing there but that's a, a plant that if if we carried on getting very dry summers then it's it's uh, damp or wet meadow would become a dust bowl almost and uh, eventually disappear but that's still doing reasonably well and of course it's it's a plant because it's so rare they monitor it really carefully to see um what's happening and um so that that that's one that's pretty uncommon there much showier plants though that, that have always been under threat are ones that are either right on their limit uh, edge of their range or um like some of the rarer orchids the monkey orchid for instance grows on a couple of sites in oxfordshire one of them is a is a wildlife trust nature reserve and there's about 300 of them growing on that um site but there's but it also appears nearby um and of course it, that's on a chalk downland site so if so it's fairly safe now that the trust owns the site, but of uh, but of course some some plants aren't actually nature reserves, and they're the ones where they can be more threatened. Isn't it the case with the monkey orchid that it has started breeding with the lady orchid, which is actually threatening the populations of both? Um, well, it's yeah the hybrid because the the reserve where it grows the the hybrid is now. Well, certainly there aren't so many lady orchids there. There never were anyway. You know, there's a good thriving hybrid population. It's more likely to threaten the lady orchid, I think, than the the, the monkey orchid. But, of course, that, again, that's being monitored and, and checked. So I can't imagine, though, that it would, would actually get rid of the, the monkey orchids. But uh, it's, it's obviously something that has to be... You know, checked regularly, and um, the unfortunate thing was they they found out recently that the the lady orchid that appeared there, when they did a DNA testing on it, it was uh, it it was not related to the plants, the lady orchids in Kent, but um, was very very closely related to plants from the Dordogne in France. So whether it, the seeds blew over from the Dordogne or they got carried in on somebody's um, boots, you know, that's been to the door doing and seen the plants there, and then and they got transported that way, or 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 somebody's actually planted it there. Who knows? I mean, it's it was um, re well, it appeared there in the I think it was early 90s. It was found at, again a nearby site, only a few miles away, but that site it first appeared there in the 60s, and that that's a different. Uh, I think it's got slightly different DNA than the the one at uh, Hartslock Reserve. And do you think that there are enough people in Oxfordshire who care about this these threatened flowers, or is one of the reasons that they're threatened in the first place that people don't get as worked up about rare plants as they do about rare birds, for instance? I think in in Oxfordshire we're pretty lucky. I mean, obviously with the university as well there's there's an awful lot of people that are really into their plants in oxfordshire there is there's an oxford rare plants group for instance 
that uh, monitors most of the rare plants and uh, that's always been uh, fairly active and they, they really are, do care about their plants. But the, the trust itself, you know, Bee, Bee Belt is you know, really well respected in, uh, in Oxfordshire and uh, they do an awful lot and um, I think we're, we're pretty pretty good with the you know getting the message across in oxfordshire on on plants but things always seem to constantly get worse in a way because we you know with housing you know in around oxford as well um the amount of new housing that's going to be needed in oxfordshire is going to have an effect on the land um and uh, you know so everything's always you know you, you you think you've you've got somewhere you know with something and then Something else rears its head, and you've got another problem to deal with. But a lot of the plants, on certainly on the reserves, are, are doing reasonably well. It's outside the nature reserves where a lot of the work is is being done now to uh, to see if we can bring some of these, you know, get the, the populations up again. And so, where would you recommend to visit out of those reserves that you've mentioned, or some of the meadows for people who live in Oxfordshire or want to visit Oxfordshire and see some of those flowers? Well, I mentioned, you know, for the monkey orchid, it's it's Hartslock Reserve, and that that is wardened in the the orchid flowering time. But uh, there are plenty of other good reserves where you can see quite a few of the the rarer plants. One of Bebout's larger reserves in the Chilterns, the Warburg Reserve, uh, for instance, has got 15 different species of orchid there. And one of those, the fly orchid, is, is one of the threatened plants. And you can see that there. If you want to see meadow plants, a lot of the meadows around Oxford, although not nature reserves, there are footpaths either up against the edge of them or uh, where you can walk along the edge and and see you know wonderful fields full of um, of meadow flowers still. Um, we're, I mean we're quite lucky in Oxford to have those. So it's not just the fritillary meadows, but if you want to see fritillaries, then Ifley Meadows in Oxford itself is the the reserve to go and see those in mid-April really. And um, if it's a good year, there are as I say there's the before there's about. 60 odd thousand to 80,000 in in a good year that can be flowering up there so that's a pretty good wildlife experience to have anyway is to just see this sheer number of beautiful plants there. That was Peter Creed on Oxfordshire's threatened plants and finally another wildflower hour member is here to tell us about her favourite nature reserve. Hi my name is Heather Kelly and I'm lucky enough to live in County Durham close to an outcrop of Permian Rock which runs up the coast of northeast England used to be known as the Magnesian limestone. This rock's been quarried in the region for hundreds of years and used in the production of agricultural lime originally. There's plenty of old lime kilns along the coast which are evidence of this. Nowadays it's largely used to make fire bricks and to produce aggregate used in road building and the construction industry. I live just at the foot of this escarpment within easy walking or cycling distance of four of these limestone quarries. Crow Trees and Bishop Midlam Quarry are now abandoned, but Raysby Hill and Thrislington have nature reserves on grassland next to working quarries. Crow Trees is a local reserve managed by Durham County Council, Thrislington is a national nature reserve, and Bishop Midlam and Raysby Hill are managed by Durham Wildlife Trust. All are close enough to home for me to visit them regularly over the summer months. 
In fact, one of my projects this year is to walk a five mile loop from home through Crow Trees Nature Reserve once a month, recording everything I see in flower. I started in January with the BSBI New Year plant hunt and will soon be doing my May walk when I'm hoping for lots of plants in flower after a slow start to the year. I'm recording this in my blog. All the quarries are triple SIs for the special flora found on the thin limestone soils, much like the chalk downlands of the south coast. But they also have areas of native woodland, giving a rich range of habitats for invertebrates and fungi. My plant hunting year normally gets going properly in March. The colour of scarlet elf cups in the woodland area starts to be replaced by dog violets and the first of the early purple orchids. By April, the blue moorgrass, which is one of the real specialities of the grassland, is appearing. This year everything's late, but by May the grassland at Thrislington in particular will be a mass of early purple orchids and cowslips, purples and yellows which really ought to clash but somehow set one another off beautifully. It's easy to miss the abundant common tway blade which is so much less flamboyant. Wetter and shadier parts of the reserve are home to valerian and sanicle too. June's another treat. Common spotted and northern marsh orchids replace the early purples and if you look carefully there are frog orchids and emerging dark red helleborines, another of the plants responsible for the triple SI status of the reserves. Rock roses and birdsfoot trefoil are popular with insect pollinators and the sky blue flowers of perennial flax crop up amongst them too. You can find tiny milkwort plants in every shade of white, pink, purple and blue. This is the time of year to look for glowworms at Thrislington too, though I've never been lucky enough to see them. July sees dark red helleborines at their best. The first year I went looking for them, I didn't realise how late in the year they flowered and thought I'd missed them. That's hard to imagine now, as the largest plants are a good foot tall. I've seen bee orchids and pyramidal and fragrant orchids at Crow Trees and Bishop Midlam too, but they're less abundant here than at other places I've visited. Field and small scabious, which is another special plant, are popular with highly brightly coloured six-spot burnet moths. Common sentry is also flowering in July and yellow carlin thistles. By August there are purple autumn gentians, particularly abundant on the grassland at the top of Bishop Midlam Quarry. The yellow wort, which flowers right through to the first frost, is everywhere too. Thyme is still in flower and brightly coloured waxcap mushrooms are starting to appear in the grassland. Given the botanical abundance of the sites, it seems rather odd that pride of place on the signboard when you enter Bishop Midlam Quarry is given to the European bee-eaters which bred here once in 2002. But then I'm not really a birder. Thanks, Heather. If you'd like to give other listeners tips on your favourite places for wild flower hunting, or if there's a particular plant you just can't quite get out of your head, then please do get in touch on our social media channels. We'd love to hear from you. And that's all for this week. Happy wild flower hunting.